pastor had asked me tonight if I would take some time to try to uh, teach missions. As we talked with the staff yesterday, Brother Tim and I, uh, he kept saying over and over, the, you know, my people need to hear this. And I don't really remember everything he said y'all need to, to hear, but uh, so I'm just going to tell you everything I know. Uh, got about three minutes to do that. Um, in the book of Acts, if you want to have a biblical reference to look at for this, Something happened toward, well, at the very end of the book of Acts. Verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 25. I'll go ahead and begin reading. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing they shall hear and shall not understand. And seeing, they shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you, he said, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will this is Paul talking to Jewish letters, basically saying, we've reached the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm going to the Gentiles now. It's because he had tried his entire life ministry at that point to win his own people to Christ as well as the Gentiles. But as a people, the Jews did not want to receive. So rather than spend his time and continuing trying to convince them, he says, I'm going to plant seed where the ground is fertile. And that's what we're trying to do in our ministry. We're trying not only to plant it where it's fertile, but to plant it where nobody else is planting it. Because if you find if you find land that nobody has planted before, you've pretty much found some fertile ground. All you have to do is just lay the seeds on top, and they'll take root and grow. And that's why you hear stories from missionaries about going to places and people standing in line to get Bibles and so forth. It's because they, they don't have one. They haven't seen one. The first time I went to, well, I can say, the first time I went to Syria, I was with my friend who you all know. I don't want to say his name because I think y'all are all liars. Um, and we got a taxi driver in a certain town, and we began to witness to him and ask him about the Bible. And he, he kind of chuckled for a moment, and he said, there is no Bible. That's Mickey Mouse. And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, don't you have Mickey Mouse in your country? I said, yes, we do. He said, well, he's not a real mouse. He's a man in a costume. He's not real. And the Bible is Mickey Mouse. I said, why do you say that? He said, because I've never seen one, and I don't know anyone who has. That's a grown man. Did you let that sink in? I've never seen one, and I don't know anyone who has. So we asked him, would you like to have one? He said, don't joke with me. He said, we're not joking. Would you like to have one? He said, yeah. So we had him drop us off in a place, and then we got another taxi so he wouldn't know where we went. And we met him later and gave him a Bible. And he found out that it's not Mickey Mouse. It's the Word of God. Amen. And that's what we're doing all the time. You know the earthquakes have just hit over there. Um, we've lost thousands of our people who are now homeless that we're trying to take care of. We have 4,000 of our church members who no longer have a home. They no longer have clothes. What they were wearing while they were sleeping when the earthquake hit. They don't have a job because that's destroyed. Uh, they have nothing. Uh, they, 
They're outside in the cold, in the rain, in the snow. And these are not strangers. These are our brothers and sisters. They're mine and they're yours, even though you don't know them. They're just distant family relatives, but they're still part of the family. And I feel like we have a responsibility to help them. You say, we can't help everybody. No, we can't. But we can help all we can help. And then we can let God find other people to help those that we cannot help. It is, it, it, you, we're never justified to make an excuse of why we should not serve God and his people. And that's all our ministry does. We exist to serve God's servants. And that's why he blesses us. We don't exist to build our buildings. We build their buildings. We don't take offerings for us. We take it for them. We don't raise support for ourselves. We raise support for them. That doesn't make us better than anybody else in the block. It just, that's what we do, and that's why he blesses us. And I hope you'll continue to do so. When I first got involved in this, and I'm, by the way, I'm not asking you to help me with it tonight. Two weeks ago, I sent, or a week and a half, whenever the first earthquake hit, I sent out a letter saying we need $140,000 immediately to help these people. And as of four or five days ago, I haven't had an update since then, we are, we are right at the $100,000 mark. And I knew that there were some other pledges from churches that were still coming in who had called to tell us we're sending a check for this or that. Now, you say, oh, I wish I hadn't missed out. In three months, we're going to need it again uh, because in three months, they're not going to have clothes and a house to live in and everything else. We have a way of getting the money in there so that they, we have a way of getting the money to them so that they can get what they need. We're not shipping it from here to there because they'll starve to death before it gets there. And besides, if it goes into a port city, the government options at the port city will confiscate whatever you send in. They'll give it to their families, to the military, to the military families, and anything left, they'll sell to Muslim families, and Christians will get nothing. So be wary of Christian organizations that are always asking you to send help to Muslim countries. They know better. It doesn't work that way. But we have the, we have the infrastructure to do it. We've been doing it for over 20 years. I don't want to say anymore. Trust me or don't trust me, that's up to you. When I began working in this ministry, I tried to find a way that I could help people understand because no matter how hard I tried to explain what we do, why we do it, how we do it, where we do it, at the end they'd say, well, what exactly is it you do? Or why do you do it that way? So I wrote a book about it first. It's that great omission book on the table. That didn't solve the problem, so I wrote a second one. That didn't solve the problem, so I've written a third one now. And they're out there for you if you want them, if you think you can benefit from them. They're 10 bucks each, and sometimes our machine malfunctions and charges 100, but that's okay. Uh, no, it does. It, it, it'll, it might malfunction and charge you nothing, but it, it, won't, uh, it won't charge you over 10. Uh, and that's why we have our children's books. We want to grab your kids' lives while they're little and get them interested in missions. If God blesses us, we'll put out more of these books on the on Bible story, or not Bible story, missionary story books for children. We'll even start giving stories about orphans that we help overseas so they can see what it's like to be a child in another country. But that's all dependent on how well people buy them because, believe it or not, it costs money to print these things. So it's, it's what we want to do, but we'll see if that's what the Lord wants us to do. I realize that I could try to explain it to people better if I brought it down into a, a bullet point thing. So there's three points I want to mention to you tonight about this concept of supporting national church planters. First of all, we have a manpower problem, and that's why we haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. In 1974 to the year 2000, 
nine out of ten missionaries who started their missionary career stayed in the United States. Let me say that again. From 1974 to the year 2000, that's 26 years, nine out of ten missionaries who started as a missionary stayed in the United States. One out of ten actually went overseas. At that same time, the missionaries in Mexico, where we send the second most missionaries to, of all those missionaries in Mexico, over half of them didn't live in Mexico. They lived along the border in San Diego and harbors in Texas and places like that. They drive over on Sunday, preach, and then drive back on Sunday afternoon and say, we'll see you guys next Sunday. They would appoint a man to preach on Sunday night, another man to preach on Wednesday night, and they'd come back across to America. Now, since COVID, nobody's hardly living over there. And now with all the mess at the border, people are afraid to go back and forth because of the danger that's involved in it. But I'm talking back when there was no danger, okay? Why were we as churches supporting missionaries to Mexico who lived in the United States? Why were we doing that? Because we didn't know. And when guys like me who knew came along and told churches, they'd say, why do you hate missionaries so much? I don't hate missionaries. I am a missionary. A house divided can't stand, our Lord said. So I don't hate missionaries, but I despise a lazy person who calls themselves a missionary. If you're, if God called you to go to Mexico, go to Mexico. You say, but it's dangerous in Mexico. Again, if God called you to go there, that's where you go. I met this family sitting back here tonight from Managua, Nicaragua. I was going, when, when all the missionaries left Nicaragua, I went into Nicaragua. And I said, pat myself on the back. I don't go where missionaries are. I go where they are not or where they leave. Why? Because somebody's got to be there. I don't know how many times I went into Nicaragua and had, you stop at the border. There's bullet holes, mortar holes everywhere, dead bodies laying on the ground. I went to Managua once just looking for a Coke. The liquor kind. I love Coke. And where I was at, out in the country, in the villages, all they had was banana drinks and strawberry drinks. And I'd rather have a root canal than drink one of those. So I thought, I'm going to waste some money and drive till I find a Coke. I had to go all the way to Managua to find a Coke. And I sat down in that little store, and I looked out beside me, and there was a wall out there that looked like somebody had thrown three buckets of red paint up on it. And I said something to the guy who had the ice cream shop. He said, no, that's not paint. He said, they just assassinated three guys there. And I walked over, and sure enough, it was still wet, still barely flowing down the wall, just a few moments before I got there. We preached crusades out there to, to a few thousand people out in the open air, and tanks would pull up and surround us, and guys with machine guns. Sometimes they'd let us continue. Sometimes they'd shut us down. One guy got saved one night. He came in plain clothes. I didn't know who he was. We were in the empty lot. People were sitting on the tops of the wall and up in the limbs of the trees, listening to the gospel. Three months later, I went back and met him, and he told me that he had been an officer in the Sandinista Army. That was the communist-backed army of Nicaragua. And that his job was to arrest, torture, and kill prisoners. He would interrogate them and get whatever information he could. Because in that town, Ocotal, Nicaragua, there was, a, there was a prison that they had converted into a military camp. And so he said, but that night when you came here and preached, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Amen. 
He said, that's fantastic. He said, so what I did was the next day I started going to the homes of every man that I had assassinated. And I'd knock on the door, and what they'd answer, I'd introduce myself. I'd say, I'm whatever. He'd say, I'm the one who killed your father, or I killed your son, or I killed your brother. But Jesus Christ has forgiven me. He's washed my sin clean, and I've come to you today to ask you to forgive me. You think the church in that town kept meeting in an empty lot? Oh, my goodness, it grew and grew and grew because this officer of the Communist Party had accepted Christ as a Savior. through town with a video camera trying to film everything that's going on and there's tanks rolling down the street. I didn't realize at nighttime you're not going to film anything except gunfire and you're not going to be able to see anything. So that was really a stupid thing to do. But nonetheless, I did it. And it was from there, I did the same thing in Cambodia, done the same thing in the Middle East. Why? Because I like it. Well, I don't dislike it, to be honest with you. I kind of enjoy it doing it. It's kind of like a rush or something. But you do it because that's what you have to do to evangelize some areas. Amen. Other people are welcome to go to the knitting circles. I don't care. Go. I don't enjoy watching people knit or play golf. So I'd rather go where there's something going on. Bombs exploding, bullets, something like that. Blood. You hear that, brother? Blood all over the place. I'd love you to go with me sometime. Yeah, well, we'll pick you up when you pass out and just take you on to the next spot. Why do we have a manpower problem when it comes to missions? Well, I guess guys just aren't willing. You know, in 1989, there were only four known Christians in the country of Mongolia. 1989. By 2015, there were over 10,000. In 1975, the Philippines had 3,000 missionaries, and they started 3,000 churches. By 1995, 25 years later, the Philippines had 118 missionaries. What a coincidence, huh? Number of countries you've been in. 118 missionaries. Because they started with 3,000, but over time they die, they quit, they change their mind, God calls them somewhere else, their wife wants to go home, the kids go to college and they want to go back to America. So they went from 3,000 missionaries down to 118 missionaries. In the same time period, they went from 3,000 churches to 55,000 churches. Why? Because people like me were no longer in their way, telling them how to reach their own people. They were let loose to reach their own people in the way they knew to reach their own people. They knew how to become all things to all men because they were part of that society. So as we got out of their way, they accomplished more. I'd go and meet with pastors, pastors' conferences, and they'd say to me, Tell the churches in America, don't send us any more missionaries. We don't need them. We can preach the gospel. We just need some Bibles. So I would tell people that, and they just keep sending missionaries there. And if God's called you there, then go. But make sure he's called you. And by the way, they got 7,000 islands there. Quit going to Mindanao. Quit going to Luzon. Find an island that nobody's gone to yet and preach the gospel there. It may not. They will not have air conditioning. You won't need a heater, I'll guarantee you. They're not going to 
have a McDonald's or a mall or anything else, but they have souls there that are waiting to hear the message of the gospel. And to be honest, as much as the Filipino missionaries do now, I don't think we need to send any more Americans to them. But I'm not the Lord, so if he calls you, you go. Do something once you get there. Why do we have this manpower problem with missionaries? I think Brother Tim talked about the few number of missionaries we have now compared to 20 or 30 years ago. In 1986, when I started, we had half the number of missionaries that we had in 1950. When I say we, I mean uh, half the number. And it was estimated that by the year 2000, the half we ha- the number we had would drop in half again. I suppose from what you're saying, they have. And they may have dropped again since that time. In other words, we have fewer missionaries going to a world that's getting heavier and heavier and heavier with population. I think on one of my first flights overseas, they, they came on board, or the, the pilot came on board and said the world just passed, I think he said, the $4 billion mark. And now we've passed the $8 billion mark. You realize that every one of those people is an eternal soul? An eternal soul. They're going to live forever either with the Lord or without the Lord. to get the gospel to them. I really, I really don't understand that. I don't judge anyone. I don't walk in your shoes. But I cannot comprehend why someone who calls themselves a Christian does not have compassion for people who are not Christians. <laughs> what did Christ come for? I don't get it. If you know, don't tell me because I don't want to know. I don't want to be tempted to fall in that trap. Why are we having fewer and fewer and fewer missionaries? Because we have not defined correctly, biblically, what a missionary is. As I've said, as Brother Tim has said, a missionary is a church planter. He is not a pastor. If we could could climb that Everest in everybody's mind, we could reach the world with the gospel in the next 10 years. But we keep thinking by sending my nephew to London that I'm sending a missionary there or by sending my fellow church member to Manila that I'm fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not. We're putting air in tires that don't even use air. I don't know why we're doing this, other than that's the way we've always been taught. I'll get to that in a moment. Why else aren't we having enough missionaries go? Not just because of the way we define the missionary now, but because of the way we appoint them. Do you know how you can become a missionary? like for me to tell you. It's very simple. What you do is you come forward in a service and you say, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. At that moment, you don't even have to have a contract. You can just say, I'm still waiting on that email to arrive to tell me where to go, but I believe God wants me to be a missionary. Then you say to your pastor, will you help me? When I say that, I'm not speaking specifically to your church. In general, this is how you become a missionary. You go to your pastor and you say to him, Pastor, I believe God wants me to be a missionary. And he will say to you, because you're going to ask him for help, you don't know what to do, he'll say, you need to get hooked up to a mission board. How do I do that? I've got two or three in my in my desk. I can give you their address and phone number. You call them and they'll say, okay, you need to fill out an application. You need to get a letter of reference from your pastor and a letter of reference from another preacher that you know maybe 
former pastor or whatever, a guy you take out for a lobster meal, and so he writes you a letter of recommendation, however you want to do it. And then they will arrange for you to have a meeting at their missions headquarters. You walk in the door, and there's a, a table up here of intelligent-looking men, and you sit down, and they'll say, give us your testimony. How long have you been a Christian? What do you do? What Bible college did you go to? Tell us about your call to missions. Where do you plan to go? What do you feel like God wants you? What, what would you like to do when you get there? Okay, now give us your doctrinal statement. You hand it to them. They hand you theirs. They say, do you agree with our doctrine? You say, looks like the same thing to me. Yeah, I agree with it. And they say to you, what do you think, guys? All in favor? Everybody raises their hand. And they say, congratulations, you're now a missionary. Now, what you need to do is have some some uh, cards printed up, missions cards, and start calling pastors and get meetings. Talk to your home pastor, and he'll help you get some meetings to start with. And you go out and you tell the people that you raise the support. And uh, when you get enough, we'll tell you how much you raise. When you get enough, then you go to that country, and we'll hook you up with a missionary who's already there. Really great guy. You'll love him. You walk in as a layman. You walk out as a missionary. You have a title that no one can take away from you. Is that how you get a driver's license? Is that how you get a pilot's license? Is that how you get a real estate license? That's not how you get anything except a missionary license. Because everybody else wants to train you, teach you, test you, let you have some experience, hook you up with somebody else to mentor you, and then if you pass everything, they'll send you on. But when it comes to missions, you walk in a layman, you walk out a missionary. I'm just telling you the truth. You don't have to believe me. Call any mission board you want to this week and ask them how it's done. Why do you think they don't like me? Why else are we not having many missionaries? Because we no longer know how to train a missionary. Oh, yeah, we do. We send them there and they work with a preacher for their first year. They need to be trained before they go. How many of you guys were in the military? Didn't you go through something called boot camp? Did you do that on the foreign field or did you do that here? They prepared you here before they sent you there. Because why? They wanted to know what they needed your assignment to be once you got there. They might decide they want you to be a cook. They might decide they want you to work in the maintenance pool. They might want you to be an airplane pilot. They might want you to be a sniper. Well, you're going to need some more training for a lot of these things. And they're going to give you the training. And if you pass a test, then they're going to send you. We don't train our missionaries. What do we tell them to do? Well, first of all, you need to take a one-week missions trip. What do you think you're going to learn in one week? Yeah, that's what. Well, uh, my family and I, we took a survey trip. We went for a month. Well, we stayed with a missionary family. Um, what did you do? Well, every night we go out to eat. Man, they got McDonald's. They got chilies, apple. They got they got everything there we got up here. So we ate good. My wife went shopping at the mall uh, with the pastor's wife. They went to Macy's. Mm-hmm. I've heard about that. I got a spy informing me on you here. Uh, no. 
they're going to talk about how good a time they had and all they did, and then they really feel burdened. That missionary can't wait for us to get back because he wants me to work with him. He says, I can really be a blessing to that. That is great. That's great. So when you go back to that country, are you going to live with that missionary and his family? Is that pastor's wife going to give your wife 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Are you going to have the money to go out to Applebee's every day? Uh-uh. So you didn't learn anything about the country, did you? What you should have done is got hooked up with a family in the country and slept on their floor or their rickety bed and eaten their beans or their whatever you eat in Africa. <laughs> People are okay with food. I, I can't eat it. Except for fried okra. I really like fried okra. Man, I could eat that all day long. Fried okra ice cream. And, and, and uh, boiled okra, too, that slime going down. Oh, man, I love that. Don't you love that? Okay, more okra. Mm, I love okra. We don't train our missionaries. We just don't. Well, I, they, we went to Bible college, and, and I took courses in missions there. That's like going to the Space and Science Museum in Chicago, is it? right before you go to walk on the moon. Well, you went there, you saw the exhibits, and you read a book about it, and you did this and that. You don't know anything about being a missionary. Let me tell you something. A missionary is a very special calling. God gave four, other than his son and his Holy Spirit, God gave four gifts to Christianity, to the church worldwide in every generation, four gifts, four gifts for the purpose of winning people to Christ, maturing them into mature Christians, and sending them out to do likewise. Four gifts he gave. The first one was missionary. The last one was pastor. Does that mean it's a lesser calling? Yeah, it does. No, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means just as being a pastor is a specific calling with specific requirements, so is being a missionary. So why are we teaching our missionaries to go to the foreign country and be a pastor? Why not send pastors there to be pastors? It just doesn't make sense. Well, that's another reason we don't have them. Another reason is because of the way we raise support. Deputation, that thing he alluded to the other night, where we have to go out and beg for money. That's why I call myself a moochinary. I've never done deputation. 37 years, I'm not about to start it now. I've gone, I'm on permanent deputation for God's service like you saw up there. Why? Because they can work circles around me. In my wildest dreams, I could not begin to do what they do. But I can help them do what they do better and do more of it and recruit more men to help them. So that's what I do. Say, does that make you a salesman? Yeah, it does. How much treasure you got stored under that roof? I ain't better than you. I'm not smarter than you. I'm better looking than most of you, but that's neither here nor there. I want rewards in heaven, and I want my father to be proud of me when I get there, and I want my Lord to say, man, it's good to have you here. Come sit down and rest for a while. You've been working yourself too hard. I want the angels to walk by and say, he's getting all the Lord's attention now. 
I want, I want Billy Sunday to walk up and say, man, you really did a good job, and then throw a chair across the auditorium or something. <laughs> I can't preach like Billy Sunday. I can't preach like Brother Tim. I was sitting there today being amazed. Man, I wish I could do that. I took a preaching class at Howells Anderson. I failed it. I did. It's preaching. Homiletics, how to preach. I can't scream when I preach. I can't bang the pulpit when I preach. I, I, I've split so many of them apart when I've done that. <laughs> and the pastor always wants me to buy him a new one. Of course, he wants one of those plexiglass pulpits like the New Agers use. I'm not talking about him. <laughs> He's probably like an old oak stump. Sending a bang on all day long. I just could never coordinate the screaming with the beating. It wasn't at the same time. It was like. <laughs> and so my the, the professor called me out there and said, Johnny, listen, you got an F in my class. But I like you. I, you mean well. I know you're handicapped and all that. He said, so I'm going to give you a D minus so you can graduate because I don't want to have to teach you this again. So, so he gave me a D minus. I bet I've preached to more people than he has. You give him a D minus. He was a nice guy too. I, I really appreciate it. He let me graduate. We don't know how to support our missionaries. If you're a businessman, and you have a job to fulfill or to fill, and different people come and apply for it. You have a guy who's fresh out of college, and he wants a job. And you have this guy over here who's got 18 years of experience already. More than likely, which one are you going to go with? Now, if the job says you only get minimum wage, no matter who you are, how much experience, then you're going to give them both the same. But in normal cases, a wise boss is going to say, you've got how many years? Let me see your resume. He makes a few a few phone calls, and then he says, you know what? We'd really love to have you working here, but we'd like to offer you a better package. Why? Because he's proven to him that he's worthy of it. We give the same thing to a 23-year-old missionary that we give to a 53-year-old missionary. Why do we do that? Now, look, let's get one thing clear. Brother Jack Scott asked me to give him some pointers of what to teach the missionaries in his class. The first thing I said, teach them this. No church owes them anything. What you give is a free will offering or free will support. You don't owe me. And if you take me on for support and tell me you've taken me on for support and you stop sending it, yeah, you owe me an explanation because you made a contract with me. But you have every right to stop supporting me for any infraction you feel I've committed or any good thing you feel I didn't do. It's your money God put in your hand to be stewards of, and I have to be thankful for whatever you give to me and stretch it out to make it go as far as I can. So when it comes to support, you don't have to pay an old guy more than you pay a young guy unless that's what you wanted to do. And I'm not even suggesting you do it. I'm just pointing out things in our missions world that you may not be aware of. Because sometimes pastors and people, pastors involved in pastoring, he's not involved in missions. And people only hear only know what they heard at Bible school or the churches they've been in. So I'm trying to give you an education of what's going on. So those are four reasons right there we haven't been able to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, there's one more. Well, there's many more. 
I'm going to give you one more. And that is this. Because we send them out, not without support, because they have more support than we do, to be quite honest with you. But I'm like anybody else. You want to give me more, I'll take it. And I'll use it. My house is paid for. I don't need it. So you don't need to give it to me. My cars are paid for. I don't owe any man anything. Thank you, God. Amen. And I work very hard to get to that place. And I'm not about to, to move away from it. But I know someday I might have to buy a car. My youngest car is 14 years old, I think. But right now, it, you ride in my truck down in Honduras, it's not mine, it's the ministries. That truck, I bought it in 2007. But it runs well, so why do I need to get rid of it? We had another vehicle I was about to get rid of, but this brother back here fixed it for us. Saved me five, $6,000. Because when those mechanics see me coming, they say, oh, here's a moron if there ever was one. We're going to hit him for everything he's got. As if all I have is $5,000. Pocket change. But here's the thing. These missionaries I talked to you about, they come in a layman, leave, leave a missionary, they start their deputation. It takes two and a half, three and a half, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I've met one guy who was at it for nine years. Nowadays, money's so tight in churches that if a missionary is not on the field within four years, many churches will drop his support because they feel like you're never going to get there. So when he was getting up to like 80%, all of a sudden he's back down to 50%. And at that time, God tells him, no, I don't want you to be a missionary anymore. Go get a job or go be a youth pastor or go be a pastor. You'd be surprised how many t opportunities missionaries get when they're on deputation. Pastors, churches that don't have a pastor, they need a pastor. You know, So it's amazing. So they get tempted to that. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Out of all the missionaries that walk out the door and start deputation, 40 3% of them will never finish it. You get that 43, not 4%, 43%. Now, they'll get monthly support checks from you while they're still on deputation. It doesn't go to missions. It goes to McDonald's. It goes to Michelin for another pair of tires. And that's another thing, if I might deviate for a minute, Missionaries make good money. Of course, supposedly we've got to be paying a lot of it on our work fund and all that kind of stuff. But with all the money a missionary might be getting, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month, why is it that when he needs new tires, he writes back to his supporting churches and asks for an offer so he can buy new tires? Do you ask other people to buy your tires? No. You budget that into your own living expenses. Why is it when he wears his truck out or his car out, he writes a letter and says, I need another vehicle. If you guys will take up an I know one guy that did that. He ended up with two brand new Toyota vans. And neither church knew the other one had bought them yet. He said, well, that's one for him and his wife. His wife doesn't drive. There's two for him. Why? Now, do you think he, do you think he told people that? No way in the world. If you support a missionary, make sure he understands you're not a perpetual, uh, this is not graft or whatever they call it, 
drift, and you don't expect to see the missionary out front with a sign and a cup in his hand. We're going to support you. You're going to go because your board let you go, because you raised all the support you need. You should have budgeted tires into your van. You should have budgeted Christian school, if, if there is one, into your van. That's another thing that I don't understand, Pastor. Missionaries like me will say, I've got kids, I want to put them in a Christian school, but it costs me so much and we can't afford it. So you raise the support to pay Christian school education for his kids, even though maybe yours can't afford to do it. But who's teaching at that Christian school? Missionaries who've never planted a church, who are running the Christian school, and they charge the missionaries' kids to go there, but they also come to your church and raise support for them as a missionary educator. I don't know about you, where I come from, that's called double dipping. Airplane ministries that you give so that they can deliver needed packages to missionaries, but they don't tell you that they charge the missionary to deliver those packages. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to give you enough eye-openers, education, that you can say, let's be very, very careful what we support, and let's investigate them. Just because you've heard of them doesn't mean they're worthy of your help. And this doesn't mean you support me either. Newsflash. Three years ago, I was telling people we have a new church started every nine minutes and 56 seconds. I was wrong. I don't remember the exact number, but it's in a magazine back there. Last year, it was every seven minutes and something. Now, I don't mean to be crude, but really, do I really need your support? I'll be honest with you. When it comes to blessings, you need to support ministries more than the ministries need your support. We're going to continue doing what we're doing with or without support from any church out there because God is the one who empowers us to do it. And if we have a deficit here, he will raise a surplus here. It never fails. We had one man that was giving us $10,000 a year. He decided he wasn't going to do that anymore. Thank you for what you gave. We got a lot done with it. We appreciate it. Next week, a new guy started giving to us. It gives us $50,000 a year. God's going to make up the difference. If you're serving him the way you should serve, he's going to make up the difference. He's going to take care of you. And if he doesn't, then I'll just go get a job somewhere else. I just so I don't have the house payment, so I don't have to make a lot of money. I just make it easy. Well, maybe I do have to make a lot of money. Forty-three <laughs> never finish deputation. Fasten your seatbelt of those who do make it to the mission field. Of course, the first few years they're in language school, so they're doing no ministry. They're studying the language. Okay, so you're paying them. $70,000 a year to learn another language. Whether you under, understand that or not, that's what you're doing. But they made it. They, they're there their first year, their second year. They got a grip on the language now. They're starting to do their ministry. Of those who make it that far, 74% will quit before the end of their third year. they made it. They did something. They paid tuition in a language school, but nothing else. 74%. I'm not finished. 
of those who do make it past the third year and through the fourth year, and then they come home for furlough to raise more money, 55% of those will never go back. You start off with 1,000 missionaries, you end up with like 50 six years later. Most missionaries do not make it to their sixth year. That might be a question you want to ask missionaries who come by. How long have you been a missionary? I've been one for 37 years. I don't think I have a problem quitting. A lot of guys do for whatever the reason. When missionaries are surveyed as to why you quit or why you didn't go back, the number one reason given was the inability to adapt to the culture. And usually it's from the wife, not the husband. Does that mean that women are cold-hearted and don't care about souls? Oh, yeah, that, yeah that's a good way. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> no, here's the thing. While the husband was in language school, going out to eat with new friends, being able to read, read the street sign, he can read a menu for goodness sakes. The wife, is, the missionary wife is back at home with her 14 children and the only person she has to talk to are those 14 kids. You can't be a missionary without a bunch of kids. I mean, it's, it's an unwritten requirement. The only adult she's been able to talk to in the last four years is her husband and ladies. How much is he you say, can't she talk to the ladies in the church? She didn't go to language school. No, she cannot talk to the ladies in the church. She can talk to her husband or she can talk to her children. But now she comes back on furlough and she comes to your church and churches like yours and you ladies are all over her, telling her how wonderful she is, how much you respect her, how much she love, you love her. And she's feeling like she's laying on a beach in Honolulu. This is great. I don't ever want to lose this. So when they get ready to go back, she says to the husband, you can go if you want to, but me and the kids are staying here. And somehow, amazingly, when that happens, God calls him to pastor a church. I don't know how you women have power. You can call, you can get the Lord to change his call from missions to pastoring just by saying you're not going back to work. I'm trying to be sarcastic and making you laugh a little bit, but this is the truth of what we go on. This is the most detailed part of it what I had to tell you. So let me zip through the other. The first one was a manpower problem. The second one is a mentality problem. People cannot grasp the concept of supporting a national church plant. But why? Well, because we've never been taught that. Why? It's in the Bible. It's all through the New Testament. Who do you think these guys are that are writing these letters? And who do you think these people are that are receiving the letters? When Paul said to Timothy, leave here and go here, why do you think he told them to do that? Because they're missionaries. They're on a job. They're doing what they're supposed to do. God has always worked with the national people to do it. Let me ask you a question. Brother Morris bought his wife an extremely belated Valentine's gift. No, he ordered it on time, but it came late. Beautiful little necklace she's got. You got it all right now? Pretty as it can be, cute as it can be. It arrived late. She didn't care. It was the thought that counted, right? And besides, she's wearing it right now. Does it matter whether that arrived by U.S. Postal Service 
FedEx, UPS, or DHL? Does it matter who the deliverer was? Or does it matter that the delivery was made? probably don't have to say anything else in that room. Why do we have to send guys who look like me to preach to guys who don't look like me? When there's already guys over there who don't look like me, who know more about the book than I know about it. And they also have expertise in dealing with their own culture. And I don't even know what their culture is. So what, what is that all about? Does it matter who delivers the message? Or does it matter that the message gets delivered? If he'd order that, UPS says we charge $5.95 to deliver this thing. FedEx says we charge $19.95 to deliver it. DHL says we charge $400 to deliver it, and for $200 more, we'll guarantee we don't lose it. <laughs> and the U.S. Postal Service says, what do you mean deliver? Now it matters who the delivery person is. Well, if you can support me as a typical missionary for, let's just say, lower level, $6,000 a month, although if I'm going to Japan, it's $14,000. If you're going to support me for $6,000 a month, how many of those guys do you think you can support with that same $6,000? But what if they don't know the Bible like you do? What did they do? Maybe they haven't been preaching as long as you. Maybe they've been preaching longer than you. We're not in a contest here. We want to know the guy's ability. Can he do it? How do we know if he can do it or not? Because somebody's vouching for him. Somebody's saying, I know he can do it because he led me to Christ. I know he can do it because he started three churches in that next village over there. Are you sure? Yes, I went with him when he did it. I'm the deacon in one of them. I know he can do it. I trained him for the ministry. I took him out with me while I started eight churches. He helped me. And then he's going on ahead and started three or four himself. I know he can do it, as Brother Abraham would show me this morning, because he's already started 50 churches. What are you worried about, John? This guy's a pro at it. If you can answer all those questions, if you can put those issues to bed, then why is it wrong to give support to a guy just because he lives in a different country than we live in? It doesn't make sense. But that's what we do. We have a mentality problem. What does that, how does that affect us? You're A, you're B, you're C. Missiologists have divided the world up into those three groups, world A, world B, world C. World A has 28% of the world's population. They're called World A as a distinction, which means they have absolutely no contact with Christ. He is not known. He is not named. There's not one verse of Scripture translated for them. There's not one known preacher for them. They're World A. World, oh, by the way, as I said, they're 28% of the world's population are here. World B is is uh, 39% of the world's population. They're not like World A. Some of them have heard of Jesus. Some of them are actually saved, but not all of them. They have access to the gospel, even though they may not have heard it yet. It's in their country, but it may not have gotten to their village yet. Y'all remember when we took you up to the Tulipon 
they were one of those. Gospel's in Honduras, but it hadn't got to them yet. Somebody had to target them and said, we're going for those souls right now. That's world B. Then you got world C. They are 33% of the world. They, they are the world that we have that has absolute, unrestricted access to the gospel. Are they all saved? No. Have they all received the gospel presentation? No. But it's there for them if they want it. It's on radio. It's on TV. It's on billboards. It's everywhere if they want to listen to it. World A, World B, World C. Well, we're sending missionaries to these three groups. How are we doing that? World A, those who've never heard the name of Jesus, they don't know him from a Pepsi bottle. Two and a half percent of the missionaries are going to them. World B, you have access, but not engulfed in it. Seventeen and a half percent of missionaries are going to them. Now I'm talking about independent Baptist ones and mission. Two and a half percent for twenty-eight percent of the world. Seventeen and a half percent for thirty-nine percent of the world. And World C with unlimited access. 80% of our missionaries are going to them. 80, not 80, 80%. But what about all the offerings we give in our churches? In American churches today, for every $100 that's given, one penny goes to these things. say, how come nobody's ever fulfilled the Great Commission? Look in the mirror. What in the world are we doing to make sure it never gets fulfilled? Is that what God wants from us? I doubt it. Might as well, because that's what we're giving. How does that have to do with mentality? We do this because that's the way we've always done it. And that's the number one killer of missions. That's not, that's what people used to tell me all the time when I first started. That's not the way we've always done missions. Well, obviously the way we've always done missions hasn't worked. Or we would have fulfilled the Great Commission. So we can co continue protecting a losing team like Ohio State. Or we can get on board with a winning team like Georgia Bulldogs. I mean, the choice is yours. I already got the love offering. You can't affect me at all. That's not the way it's always been done. Guess what? They don't farm the way they've always farmed. We don't transport ourselves around the way it's always been done. We don't come to church the way it's always been done. Hey, not a single buggy horse out there. Not a one. You ladies today left here and went home to your house and opened a big box in your kitchen and pulled out a little box and put it in a medium-sized box and pushed some buttons and three minutes later, dinner was served. And when all was over, you took your dirty dishes in place and you put them in another box, pushed some buttons, and it washed them for you. My grandmother would have called that witchcraft. <laughs> we don't do anything the way we've always done it except missions. 
And then when a guy like me comes along, or like Brother Tim, and tries to wake up people, they say, these guys are liberal. These guys hate missionaries. These guys don't care. These guys don't realize that, are you ready? American money belongs to American missionaries. And I would agree with that. Only I've never seen any American money in my whole life. Everything I've seen belongs to God. Because the scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So you'll take money from anybody? I will accept God's money from any dirty hand he wants to give it to me from. Because it's not theirs, it's his. Even Ecclesiastes says that God allows the pagans to store up wealth to give to his children. That's all I'm doing. I'm going to take God's money. If I have to wash it off in the pig trough before I can spend it, fine. But once it's clean and dried, it spends just as well as any other money. And souls get saved. You say, we can't trust them. Why can't you? Because they're not white like you are? If that would be the case, I'd never come to a church up north. I was raised in the deep south. I was 20 years old before I heard the word Yankee with an adjective in front of it. And my mom was a Sunday school teacher, but still, she was a very colorful Sunday school teacher. I was taught not to trust Yankees, and I understand why. First time when I went up to Chicago, I was scared to death to be up there. Oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm in enemy territory up here. What do they What do they find out? I'm from the south. No, they'll never find out. Hello, southern boy, where are you from? How do they know I'm from the south? I gave myself away. When I moved to New York to start a church, it was so easy there because every time you knock on the door, they'd invite you in because they wanted to hear you talk. Okay. Talk them into heaven. We can trust the nationals. Well, there's some you can. Historically, we all know this to be true. There's a national named uh, Jim Baker. I don't trust him. Uh, there's a national named Jimmy Swaggart. I don't trust him. And the list could go on. I, we could name them within our Baptist circles too, couldn't we? There's some nationals in America. But you understand? We're all nationals. But where are you a national of? See? So if you say, I don't trust nationals, you don't trust yourself. You say, but they don't have accountability. Really, I dare you to fill out one of our accountability reports that may have to be reported. If they don't fill it out, they never get another check from us. I don't know, Brother Silly would have to, Sillier or whatever. Oh, that's Canadian, Sillier? Okay. He would have to do some research on it, but I would imagine, y'all, if you're like most churches, you have a percentage of your missionaries that don't send in reports. The difference is if somebody does that to us, we never send the money to them. You say, what if they apologize? We accept their apology and we never send the money to them. But what if it was a problem? We acknowledge that they had a problem and we never send the money to them. Why? Because I told you that if we support a guy, they have to do a quarterly report. And now if I don't make them do a quarterly report, you can't trust this national because I've lied to you. So whether I want to drop their support or not isn't the issue. The issue is it has to be done. Now, we got one package of reports from Nigeria once. It's 
bosses were calling up upset, and they kept saying, we said it, we said it, and finally it arrived. The post office brought it to me, and they had it in one of those brown, thin brown envelopes, and it was torn on all four sides, had one little sliver that wasn't torn, and somebody had wrapped strings around it, and I looked on the postmark, and it had been sent nine months earlier. We didn't drop their support. They sent their report. It just didn't get to us in time. So we'll make an exception in that. Or the guy got run over and he's dead. We make an exception with that. Or if his mother-in-law is visiting, we'll make an exception with that. And send prayer. Uh, so in our ministry, we have accountability. Uh, we have trust. And then we have accounting. We keep up what we are sending. By the way, if somebody we support starts getting money from somebody else, they no longer get money from us. We do. Why should we do that? Why double dip when other guys have nothing? It doesn't make sense. You say, well, how do you keep up with all that? I have full-time staff with computers that keep up with all that. We have our own proprietary software that keeps up with that. I'll tell you how well it works. When we get reports, we enter it into our database. We can tell you then with one click of a button, we can show you a spreadsheet of every report we've ever gotten from him, how many churches he started, how many people he's led to Christ, how many villages he's evangelized? How many people he's baptized? We can compare him to every other preacher in his group. If there's four of them or if there's 400 of them, we can say, why is this guy leading three people a month to Christ, but every other preacher in his group averages winning 15 people a month to Christ? We can do that, and we do do that. Because then we want to call the national director and say, I think we got a problem with Brother So-and-so. He's not getting the job done. Can you let us investigate and let us know what it is? If he comes back and says he's been lazy, well, he just lost his support. But if he says, you know, for this last quarter, the guy was in the hospital, he broke his leg, well, okay, we understand that. We got a letter once where a guy said he had led over 800 people to Christ that quarter. And, boy, the red flags went off like crazy. I thought it was a Chinese army coming through. I called up the director in Africa and said, How, what's, what's going on here? This guy really went over 800 people to Christ? He said, yeah, we had a month-long citywide street preaching event going on. So he was out from sunup to sundown every day for 30 days preaching on the street. So he had over 800 professions of faith. I said, oh, okay, no wonder. But it was important enough for me to know why is all of a sudden his numbers going from 15 or 20 to 800? There's got to be a reason. I need to know, not only for my own benefit, but because his sponsor, when they get that report, they're going to say, what in the world is going on with this guy? And I need to already have the answer, not say, oh, I'll check on that and see. So when I got the answer, I wrote a note to them on the report saying, the reason for this extreme number is because blah, 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 blah. And everybody was happy. We have accounting. We have accountability. We have trust. That brings us to the third and final reason we haven't got it done. We talked about manpower. We talked about uh, mentality. Now let's talk about money. And I'm not asking you to give. I'm telling you that's one of the three things. So let's discuss it. We have money problems because we're not wise with our money. If you wanted to buy something from China, it was North Korea, but I just did. I didn't know it was from China. I know we're not supposed to do that anymore. Shoes. You 
the Chinese bullet is one color. Um, I had two options. I can allow Amazon to arrange the shipping for me from China, which because I'm an illustrious Prime member, I don't have to pay for shipping. Aha, stewardship. Or, or I could call that factory and talk to the owner of the company, well, not the owner, but you know, whoever's in charge, and say, uh, I would like to get that product, but I would like for you to have it delivered to me. How much would a plane ticket cost for me to ship, have one of your guys fly it over here? Well, we have to buy the plane ticket, but the hotel wants to get there for night, food. somewhere around $3,000, $3,500. But with Prime, it's free. And all I was wondering was some of those garment bags so my suits won't get wrinkled when I throw them in my suitcase. I just didn't think about it in time before I bought the company. Now, I can have them hand deliver it all the way to Augusta for me, or I can just let Prime ship it. Which do you think is the smartest way? spending $6,000 a month to send the gospel to China when there's already Chinese speakers there. I mean, if you got an answer, tell me. I'm open. Why are we doing that? I said, well, that's our only option. It ain't any more. Now you know about national preachers. You know what they can do. You know how they do it. I've tried to represent them well. Now you know that there is another way of doing it. So you have to decide what it is you want to do. I think I've said enough about that. Let me give you an illustration of something that will finish. What are the national preachers really like? You didn't know, but you saw a guy up on the screen tonight with white hair that I led to Christ when he was a teenager. He was in that tribal village I told you all about last night. He served with see him a few years ago in Burma, Brother Greg's now across the border, and I said, Aldon, you know, we haven't helped you in a long time because you're out here, but do you have young preachers that need help? Your Timothys? He said, uh, they need help, but we don't know where to help. He said, I can raise the money for them. We've started some businesses, and those businesses pay their salaries for them so they can go out and do the work of the ministry. <laughs> I wanted more treasures than that. He just took them away from me. We had 123 preachers in Vietnam that we supported, largest ministry in Vietnam. They wrote me a letter and said, John, thank you so much. You bought us time to start our churches, build our members, watch our economy grow, and our people now have jobs. We no longer need help. Please give the money you've been sending to us to other preachers around the world who still need later, I got the same letter from Cambodia, lost 80 some kids today, because they were honest enough to say, we don't need you, give it to someone who does, why, because they want the gospel to go into all the world also, just like we do, and so they're doing their part, 
on top of actually taking up missions offerings and sending them and sending out their own Cambodian preachers as missionaries. But in, China, but in northern Thailand, on my first visit there, I met two preachers named uh, Baldu and Yatu. They're also Akai tribe people. And they sent me a letter of how they had gone on an evangelism trip up into the jungle. They were living on the border in a town called Tachalit, I don't know if you've ever been there, on the border between uh, Thailand, well, it's, it's in the Golden Triangle where Laos, Thailand, and, and uh, Burma come together. It's a, it was a wild west town, wild place. They told me in their letter that they had gone out into the jungle on an evangelism trip. They had taken with them their shoulder bags, which they wear filled with rice, so they have something to eat along the journey. They didn't know where they're going. They found a trail. That's where I learned it from. I didn't teach them. They teach me. They found a trail. Figure, if enough feet had passed this way to make a trail, there's got to be something at the end of it. So they begin to walk and walk and walk for days till they ran out of food and still didn't find a village. So they kept going. They came into a clearing where there was a rice paddy. Huge rice paddy. In the middle of the in the middle of the paddy, there was a hill. The Yaka, I think I mentioned, always live up on top of the hill because they're afraid of the they're afraid of the spirits in the water. So they don't want to go down to the water. So they rarely ever take a bath. First time I stayed with them, I started to take a bath, and uh, they said, well, "Watch out for the crocodiles." Said, I'll watch out for you. And I started to walk, and I looked around, and everybody was following me. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a bath. And, yeah, 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 let's go. We want to watch. Now, these were the people that thought I was an albino monkey. And they wanted to make sure I really was not a monkey. They wanted evidence. That trust factor again. And I told my wife that when I got home, and she said, man, they must have really been disappointed. Uh, well, I didn't take a bath because I'm not going to take a bath with an audience. You know, been there, done that. I ain't doing it again. Uh, actually, that did happen in Nicaragua once, uh, but not on purpose. Yeah, I am, and I got to climb out of it fast, yeah. Uh, okay, Yatu and Baldu saw the, 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 the hill, and the house is on top of the hill. So they walked up the hill, and when they got there, the entire village was sitting there. It wouldn't be this many people, but they were sitting there on the floor, on the ground. And a, the shaman walked up to them, and he looked at them, and he said, Thank you for coming. We've been expecting you. Now tell us about the Creator. They looked at each other like, what? what? What is he talking about? They've been expecting us. They didn't have drones that they could see who's walking down the trail. They'd walk for days. They didn't even know where they were going. And he says, we've been expecting you. So they did the logical thing. They said, what do you mean you've been expecting us? He said, oh, I'm the shaman here. Shaman's witch doctor. It's also uh, HOA supervisor. Uh, <laughs> The shaman does everything. He's their doctor. He prays to the evil spirits to let them be healed. He does everything. 
He said, all my life, even when I was training to be a shaman, I would look up in the stars, sky at night and see the stars, and I would think to myself, there must be a spirit up there who's greater than the spirits here. He said, because the spirits we worship are mean, they hate us, they smell badly, they take our wealth away from us. Sometimes they make us sacrifice our cattle to them or our chickens. Sometimes they make us sacrifice one of our children to them. They don't love us. They hate us. But when I see the stars come out at night and the sun come up in the morning and the rain clouds come and drop water and it makes our crops grow, it gives us water that we can drink. Our women give birth to our little children. They run around through here giggling, and they bring so much joy to my heart. I thought to myself, there's got to be a spirit somewhere greater than these spirits. And he must be stronger than all these spirits put together because they can't stop the sun from coming up. And so sometimes I look in the sky and I say, you know, spirit, creator, whoever you are, I want to know you. He said, a few nights ago, before I went to bed, I told the creator that I really wanted to know him. And he told me, in three days, I will send two messengers to tell you about me. That three days, that was the day they were leaving their homes to walk into the jungle. He said, in three days, two messengers. This morning was the third day. So when I woke up this morning, I told everybody, you cannot go to the paddocks today. Sit here on the floor because the Creator is sending His two messengers today. And here you are. So tell us about the Creator. Well, that was a Nineveh experience. Everybody there got saved. Three, four years later, the shaman was the pastor in that village. This is a village up in Burma that no missionary has been to or could go to because they're not allowed. And that's the point of nationalism. Lock me out, you lock them out. We had a brother in Vietnam named Arnok. Met in 1992. He'd been in prison. He'd been married for 17 years. He'd been in prison for 11 of those 17 years. Every time they let him out, he'd preach, they'd put him back in again. His wife got to see him twice a year. Twice a year. Each time she'd bring a different child with her. He said, why? Is that all the guards were permitted? She said, no, I'm going to visit him every day. Why are you here twice a year? He said, that's all I can afford. It's a long way. I had to get a bus ticket. I said, well, what's a bus ticket cost? And she told me, they called it dong. She told me the number of dongs she needed for the day. And so I, I translated it. I translated it. Well, how many, what would that be in U.S. currency? Convert to Fed. She, and it came out to 10 cents. So she had 20 cents a year that she could use to go visit her husband. Pretty sad. But there were over 20 preachers scattered around Vietnam of men that he had led to Christ in prison, discipled them, trained them to be preachers, and when they got out, he went back out to the jungles, pastored, and started churches. So when somebody says to me, you can't trust a national, When somebody says to me they're just rice Christians, they'll preach for anybody that'll feed them. Well, let me ask you a question. When a missionary stands here and says, I want to go to X country, I need 
30 more percent of my support and I can go. Will you please help me? What's he saying? If I get the 30%, I'll go. If I don't get it, I'm not going. Who's the rice Krispie? Don't get mad, I'm just asking. Who's the rice Krispie? Let's not condemn him for doing something we do. Days ago, we buried a lady in Syria. Amina is her name. She's married to a pastor named George. They were killed in the living room. Their daughter lives in Europe because we got her out of the country because she had been raped, beaten, and shot so many times before she turned 17 that we knew we had to get her out of the country while we could. So she's in Europe. Their son wasn't there that night. He was with some friends. He's in his early 20s. George and Mina were killed in the living room. Nine days later, we finally got him to the lobotomy. He paid as it was and pulled her out from under the rubble and took her out with him and others. We haven't found George's body yet. It's there, but it's probably just going to get bulldozed by the government into some hole somewhere with a bunch of paper and cement. first met George, he walked with a limp because the police had taken him up on the third floor of an apartment building, pushed him off to the sidewalk, and broke his hip. We took him to the hospital by then to get him healed, to get him treated. They wouldn't let him come in because he was a Christian. So to the day he died, Sixty-eight orphans between the age of three and six who lost mom and dad. But they got a mama, they got a dad, and a mama, dad, and dad who were church people. You know why? Because they have a different understanding of church than we do. Everybody over there is born into a tribe. They're born and died in that tribe. There's only one way to get out of it, and that's to become a Christian. And if you leave the faith of the tribe, Muslim faith of the tribe, you are out of the family. Odds are they're going to kill you. But if they don't kill you, you're no longer one of them. They don't know you anymore. They won't help you. You're dead to them. So who's their family? We. We We have our own last name. Christians. That's our family they call our Lord there? They don't call him Jesus. They call him, that's what the Muslims call him. They call him the Lord of the cross. I love that name. They think it's an insult. It is not. It's glorious. So, our people don't come to the house church and get upset and grieve. They don't say, I don't like the pastor they don't say he brings in weird old missionaries to speak, so I'm not going back there anymore. You know why? Because they don't have a family. Church is a family. And if you have a problem in your family, do you just get up and leave your family? Man, no. 
might despise each other for a while, but it's still my brother, still my sister, still my mom, my dad, my cousin, my uncle. We don't abandon our family because we didn't like something. We walked into the home for a family reunion. They had a type of music on I didn't like, so I'm never going back to a family reunion again. You know why that happens here? Because we don't see ourselves as a family. We see family, 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 family. They don't even know you over it. This is family. This is it. And that's how a church is for people around the world in third world countries. We haven't educated them enough in the Bible yet for them to find out that it's okay to sow discord in the church. We haven't taught them yet that it's a mark of true spirituality if you can be sarcastic to your pastor and put him in his place. Now, I'm writing the curriculum on it, but uh, we haven't got it to them yet. So here's what I want for you tonight. I'd like to ask you from this point on, if you have a, if you're content with the understanding that you have, please pray for these national premiers. Nothing encourages them more than to find out that Christians are okay. It's not the money. It's not the bicycle or the motorcycle or the food for an orphan or whatever. They love that. That's great to know that there's people over here because they think highly of us. They think that we're all spiritual giants. They also think we're all doctors, but we're not. Pray for them. Love them. Care for them. Teach your children to pray for them. Learn about their needs. Learn about where they live. Go visit them like Brother Tim. Walk in their home. Sleep a night with them. Then you can go back to the fights when they leave. But sleep one night with them. See what it's like. See what it tastes like to eat their food. You know, carry some granola bars with you when they're not looking. But at least take a nibble so you see what it's like. You see what they're going through. Put yourself in their place for just a few hours. And you will be amazed how your knowledge and understanding of the world will just, just grow exponentially. How your heart will become burdened. And you'll have a desire to do more and more and more and more of the gospel. I thank you for letting me come and take up so much of your time. And I pray that God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. Sure appreciate it.